Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you that we can uh, come before you tonight with, a, with an assurance that we will never, ever experience hell, ever, because we are covered by the blood of Christ and our sins, though they deserve hell, they deserve eternally to be uh, separated from you. And uh, we thank you that in the cross uh, we are reconciled to you and that we won't find ourselves as those who are outside of the city, but those who are inside and enjoying your presence and the wonder and beauty of the restored creation that you have promised for those who love you. Now, as we study together, we ask for your blessing, and we ask it again in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have a quotation uh, on the front cover uh, from Martin Marty. Martin Marty is one of the uh, sort of leading um, evangelical-ish um, uh, historians uh, of the 20th century, and um, uh, wrote a, a fascinating uh, essay, appeared in a volume in 1985, some uh, 30 years ago, um, Hell Disappeared and No One Noticed. Uh, it was actually the title of the, of the essay, uh, Why the Disappearance of Hell in the Preaching and Teaching of uh, the conservative church in the 20th century and what happened uh, what happened to, to hell and I still find uh, you know if you preach a sermon on hell and uh, uh, and, and it has certainly happened to me um, you know somebody is going to say in, even in the context that, that, that you and I move in very conservative context somebody is going to say at the end of the sermon you sounded like a Baptist um, well, all, all kudos to the Baptists in that case, because they're being faithful to the Word of God. Um, hell disappeared and no one uh, noticed. I, I also have uh, one of those no, hold, no holds barred uh, quotations from Jonathan Edwards, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I wonder how many of you have ever read that. This is a sermon. Um, yeah, hands up. How many have you read? Yeah. Um, it's the kind of sermon that, you, that you know, keeps you awake at night. When, when you, if you really think about what Edwards is saying. And, and he certainly uses very graphic imagery. And I think that's what it is. He's been criticized, of course, for that sermon. Going perhaps beyond Scripture. But I think he's using imagery, graphic imagery of, of the same metaphor imagery as uh, the Bible itself uses about the worm that does not die or the fire that is not uh, quenched or a place of darkness uh, and, and, and so on. And uh, this sermon was preached on two occasions uh, that we know of and um, one was certainly on July the 8th, 1741, uh, a date that we associate with the beginnings maybe the midpoint of the great awakening uh, in uh, New England. And this sermon 
um, uh, has, a, has a kind of um, historical importance because of the effect that it had on those who, who heard it. Um, interesting quotation from Lewis Carroll, uh, actually one of my favorite authors, um, Alice in Wonderland, uh, whose real name, of course, was Charles Lutwidge Didson, and uh, probably advantageous that he changed his name to Lewis Carroll. Um, and uh, the statement, if the Bible really taught the doctrine of everlasting punishment, I would give up the Bible. Maybe you won't like Lewis Carroll quite as much now. Um, uh, let's uh, let's uh, talk a little bit. Uh, we've we've already addressed this to some degree, but let's let's flesh it out a little more. Uh, the, the modern disappearance of hell, and, and and by that I mean the modern disappearance from the church, the, the church sort of generally. What what happened? What is the trajectory from the 19th century, mid 19th century, uh, to the present time? And uh, in part. Uh, it is, of course, a trajectory uh, towards the idea of universalism, uh, that everybody is going to be saved. And even if there is a theoretical hell, it is, it is empty. Uh, it is the view uh, associated with a, a Greek word. It occurs once in the New Testament, in Acts 3.21, and uh, variously translated uh, the noun occurs in Acts 3.21, but uh, uh, variously translated uh, with, the, with the idea of restoration. Apocatastasis. Uh, uh, and uh, associated uh, in particular with Origen, uh, one of the church fathers, uh, in his book against Celsus, uh, and the belief... Uh, the belief that the goal of uh, history, the goal of God, uh, is complete and absolute restoration, uh, which led Origen to advocate a view of uh, universalism, uh, opposed uh, later uh, by uh, Augustine of Hippo, uh, and it was condemned, the, the view of universalism was condemned at the Council of Constantinople in 553. Uh, it returns again at the time of the Reformation among uh, what we sometimes call the radical uh, reformers, uh, sometimes associated with Anabaptists. Uh, Anabaptists, uh, don't make the mistake of equating Anabaptists with Baptists, Baptists really don't, don't emerge until the middle of the 1600s. Uh, one thinks of John Bunyan and so on, born in 1628. But, but uh, Bunyan, uh, you know, Bunyan, uh, the, the first sort of major sort of Baptist confession, you're, you're, you're at 1689 uh, before that emerges. But in the previous century, uh, the time of the radical reformers and the Anabaptists in the 16th century, the Anabaptists uh, denied the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. So, so they, they were of a completely different stripe. Uh, but they also adopted a view of universalism. Uh, and it was condemned 
in the Augsburg uh, Confession. Uh, the Augsburg Confession is mid-16th sort of, uh, century in chapter 17 um, that specifically refutes the Anabaptists. They condemn, this is, this is part of chapter 17 of the Augsburg Confession, they condemn the Anabaptists who think that there will be an end to the punishment of condemned men and devils. So, so the Anabaptists won't deny the concept of punishment, right? In the 20th century, so-called Christians will deny the very concept of punishment as something that is sub-Christian, uh, and, and that what folk need is not punishment, but, but, um, but rehabilitation, um, but in the 16th century, they weren't denying the concept of punishment. It's just that there will be an end to it. And eventually, some way, uh, post-mortem, uh, God will, will restore. Uh, and, therefore, and therefore, everybody will be saved in the end. Uh, jumping now into the 19th century, Schleimacher. You know, there are, three, there are three essential characters that dominate the sort of mid-late 19th century that really explain the 20th century. Uh, and they are Darwin, Charles Darwin, and Sigmund Freud, and uh, in, in some respects, Schleimacher. And uh, Schleimacher um, uh, advocated a view um, that the sovereign love of God, that the idea of a sovereign, all-powerful love is bound, sorry for the typo, is bound to save all. So it was the beginning of a movement that we're very familiar with in the 20th century, uh, that God is loving and, uh, as opposed to being just, that the essential attribute in God is love. And if that love is sovereign, that love is all-conquering uh, and therefore must, must in the end save everyone. Uh, and the second part of Schleimacher's uh, view is that heaven would be spoiled if its inhabitants had to witness the eternal sufferings of the damned. Well, you can understand the strength of that argument. How can you enjoy heaven knowing that there's a hell? How can you enjoy heaven knowing that some of your friends or perhaps even some of your family or perhaps worse still, your spouse isn't saved? Right? So how can you enjoy fullness of joy? How can you ever be fully content? How can you ever be fully happy knowing that there are others who are being punished, and punished eternally, and punished consciously eternally. That's, that's a very difficult question to answer. Now, Jonathan Edwards would, would answer that by saying that in heaven, one will rejoice in the application of justice. Right? That, that's a very Edwardsian way, Jonathan Edwards. Now, not not not. Uh, I'm not being politically of Ed, Ed, Edwardsian, but but Jonathan Edwards. Um, that one one that part of what it means to have the image of God is to think like God thinks, and therefore have no misgivings about the application of justice, uh, and therefore one will be fully able to rejoice uh, e even within uh, an understanding of the application of that, of that justice. Well, Schleimacher, of course, is asking the question, and it would be answered largely in the 20th century by saying, if, if, one, if, there, if there is a heaven and if there is something that purports to be 
fullness of joy. It cannot be uh, on, a, on, on the same, it, it cannot coexist with a, a knowledge of conscious punishment. So uh, in the 20th century, you see in various forms, in, in Protestant forms and Roman Catholic forms, uh, ideas of a post-mortem, post-death um, evangelism. And, and it's called different things in different strands of thought in, say, the radical left-wing, um, non-compliant Roman Catholic uh, Carl Rahner, for example, R-A-H-N-E-R. There have been several sort of leading Catholic theologians in the 20th century who kind of went against the Catholic tradition. They were still, they were sort of on the fringes of Catholicism, but huge figures. Uh, Schillebex is one, and Carl Rahner is the other, uh, and there are others. Uh, But Carl Rahner, for example, um, uh, coined the phrase anonymous Christianity, so he, he, isn't, he isn't addressing the issue of post-mortem evangelism, basically getting out of purgatory. Uh, he's addressing it from before death, saying um, that uh, pe- people can be viewed as Christians despite, despite their knowledge, despite their faith, despite th- they, may be, they may be anonymous, they, they don't look like Christians, they don't sound like Christians, they don't believe in, in traditional Christian doctrine, but they're still Christians, uh, but, but anonymously so. And, and of course, he's, he's addressing what we would otherwise uh, refer to as there are many roads to heaven. Um, now, he's still, uh, Karl Rahner still advocated, which is now kind of old-fashioned, but he still advocated the primacy of Christianity over every other faith. Now, now that has also now been questioned, uh, and, and, and all forms of religion have equal value, uh, uh, which is where I think we would be today. Uh, Karl Barth and Emil Brunner, two enormously important figures. Uh, Karl Barth, for example, would explain a great deal of where Presbyterianism has gone in the 20th century. It explains a great deal of our own denomination. Uh, our own denomination went uh, in a pro Karl Barth direction in the 1980s, 1970s, maybe 60s even, uh, and, then, and then has returned. One of the great, one of the great stories in our own denomination uh, is the victory over Barthianism. Um, that's, a, that's a wonderful story. It's a, it's a gracious act of God and the, and, and the explanation of how that has been brought about in our own, uh, in our own uh, denomination. Um, but Barth and Brunner, uh, uh, now, um, at the end of the day, uh, uh, Barth and Brunner held out the hope that hell was empty. They didn't they didn't actually say that hell was empty. They held out the hope that it was empty. But even that itself is contrary to the direction of Scripture, which affirms categorically that hell is not empty and never will be empty. So, so there's no basis for holding out the hope that it's empty. One can only hold out the hope that it's empty by going flat contrary to a great deal of what Jesus had to say, uh, for example, about about hell. Another figure is John Hick. Uh, John Hick is a kind of 
light that appears, well, it's a darkness really that appears and then, and then, and then disappears again. And, and I don't think today he's considered as important as he was, uh, say, 25 or 30 years ago. But he did write this book, Evil and the God of Love, in 1977. I was at seminary when this book appeared. It made a big, it was like a, a tornado that came through and a lot of there was a lot of talk and a lot of, uh, of course, there was no internet and there were no emails and there was no blogs or anything like that. But, there, but all of those things would have, would have exploded had it been uh, published today. Uh, and, and the point that he was trying to say is that Christianity needs to, needs to get a little more humble, you know, and, and, and that it shouldn't, it shouldn't sound as triumphalist and bombastic over other world uh, religions. And it was at the sort of high point of the sort of World Council of Churches era. And the World Council of Churches has kind of declined in its importance in the last 25 or 30 years. But in 1977, this was sort of at the high point uh, of the World Council of Churches and, and basically saying to Christianity, you need to be a little more humble in the face of other world, uh, other world religions. It, it's, not as, it's not as easy to say some dumb thing like that today in the face of the growth and threat of Islam. And I don't think the church, left or right, conservative or liberal, would hear that message today as it would have done in uh, 1977. So the politics of where we are uh, has, has sort of shifted the emphasis a great deal. Um, uh, and then, uh, as, I, as we've already looked at, but I'm putting it here just for wholeness sake as a way of reminder, uh, there have been evangelical misgivings about hell and about the eternality uh, of hell, and we saw that uh, in John Wenham. Uh, at Tyndale Hall in Bristol, uh, that may, mightn't mean anything to you, but just remember that uh, Jim Packer, for example, was the principal of Tyndale Hall in Bristol in the early 1970s. I was interviewed, I went to uh, Tyndale Hall, Bristol, uh, as a prospective seminary student in 1975, didn't end up there, ended up in Jackson, Mississippi, um, uh, uh, which I wouldn't have realized uh, at the time I went to Bristol, uh, but my, uh, my interview was with Jim Packer, and um, I, I have a vivid recollection of that interview, and vivid recollection of what he said uh, in that uh, interview, which was to change the course uh, that I was heading in uh, by almost 180 degrees. And, and uh, uh, I have one typed letter from Jim Packer that I hold in my, in my memoirs, uh, and I'll sell to you for $25 uh, if you want it. But no, it's one of those treasured letters that, that he once uh, wrote to me. Uh, uh, I was absolutely nobody, uh, but, but he took the time to, to type uh, a letter. Uh, but that's Tyndale Hall. And John Wenham, uh, in 1974, who taught there, uh, called for a reassessment of hell, the ultimate horror of God's universe is hell. That was the sentence in his book, The Goodness of God. And The Goodness of God was published by uh, InterVarsity Press, which was the stalwart sort of evangelical conservative press. Maybe not so much now, but, but in the 1970s it certainly was. Uh, and then uh, the rise of uh, annihilationism, and we've already looked at that 
uh, and, and even John Stott uh, having uh, certain misgivings about uh, the translation of uh, a certain uh, uh, Apollumi uh, to destroy, uh, uh, wanting, suggesting that perhaps the, the, the word needs to be thought of as, as total destruction, annihilation, rather than everlasting punishment. And we've looked at that in a previous lecture. Now, what's at stake in the denial of hell? And I want to ask this question from a pastoral point of view. What's at stake? Uh, and let me suggest uh, four uh, sort of lines of thought here. Um, what's at stake in the denial of hell? Well, one thing that's at stake is our understanding of God. In order to remove hell and in order to remove the concept of punishment, you have to do something to your understanding of God. You have to say something like, God is love, not, not just. That the fundamental attribute in God is love, not not justice. You have to say something. In order to say that, that there is something sub-Christian about the idea of punishment, uh, the idea of retribution, and particularly the idea of eternal punishment and eternal retribution, you can't do that without adjusting the traditional doctrine of God and the traditional understanding of the attributes of God, that God is loving, but God is also just that there is also retributive righteousness that is part of the essence of God. That God, that, 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 that God is wrathful, wrathful towards, towards sin. That it is the reflex of the, the, the wrath of God is the reflex of the holiness of God towards sin. It is something that is absolutely necessary and essential to the being of God. Right? So all forms of the denial of hell begin somewhere else, and they begin with a, with, a, with a recasting of the way that they understand God. And it, it, it sometimes arises in the pew, right? or, in the, or among, among, not theologians so much now, but, but our friends, perhaps, and, and we've all had conversations that begin with sentences like this, I like to think of God as, well, who knows what's going to come out next, but, but more than likely, it has, it has no biblical basis whatsoever. Um, so, the traditional doctrine of God uh, is rejected as restrictive of human freedom and offensive to human uh, sensibilities. Uh, God's love is redefined as no longer holy accommodation to the offensiveness, the so-called, so, the perceived offensiveness of uh, the traditional doctrine of God. So, so that's number one. Um, you know, the question that you have to ask yourself when you're reading the Bible, engaged in the Bible study, is not, how do you feel about this? You know, the, the, the reporter who comes in in the midst of a trauma and, and a tragedy and they say, how do you feel? And they, and they want you to emote, right? And, and people will voluntarily emote to tragedies on live TV and, and so on. And, and it, makes for, uh, it makes for riveting viewing. 
uh, very often, and, and, and it affects our emotions as we see somebody else emote to something. Um, but the fundamental question uh, of any passage of Scripture is not how do you feel about this. The fundamental question is what is this passage saying about God? It's not, what, not what is it saying to you, first of all. But what is this passage teaching me? What is it saying about God? Right? That's, the, that's the number one question that we ask of any passage of Scripture from Genesis to uh, Revelation. What is this passage teaching me about God? B- before I ask the question, what is this passage teaching me about myself, about my condition, or, 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 or any, any other aspect to do with me, what, what is it saying about God? And the moment that you move away from asking that question is the moment where doctrine is beginning to wobble, right? And the doctrine of God is beginning to, to, to wobble. Well, number two, the traditional view of justice uh, is in question, uh, and it's being, it's being challenged by uh, giving... Uh, more attention to a a utilitarian uh, view. Uh, So denying uh, the concept of retribution. Uh, You can trace it back to the philosophers John Stuart Mill and and Jeremy Bentham, for whom, I think, largely we owe the notion that's very common today that, that criminals, for example, need correction and rehabilitation more than they need punishment. Now, if you think that, if that's your fundamental thought about crime and punishment, that, that criminals need rehabilitation more than they need punishment, then you, you're, you're a son or a daughter of John Stuart Mill or Jeremy Bentham. Uh, because that, in, that thought pattern, which is a very 20th century thought pattern, and a very un, say, 18th century, and a certainly a very un 16th century uh, way of thinking, um, uh, a change has taken place in our understanding of justice. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in an in a essay in his book, it's not an easy book to read, uh, God in the Dark, very important book by C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis said, uh, responds to this uh, idea, and he's actually taking on Stuart Mill and, and uh, Jeremy Bentham. Uh, we demand of a cure not whether it is just, but whether it succeeds. Thus, when we cease to consider what the criminal deserves and consider only what will cure him or deter others, right, so viewing justice as a deterrent rather than a punishment, that's huge today. Right? Is it, should we punish a criminal because of the crime that he's committed, that is right or wrong, or should we punish him in order to deter others? Let's, let's set an example as a deterrent for others. That, that's, a, that's a radical change in the idea of justice. Um, in, instead of a person... Um, I have to back up. We have tacitly removed him from the sphere of justice altogether. Instead of a person, a subject of rights, we now have a mere object, a patient, a case. Well, that's C.S. Lewis, and, and often when you read Lewis, you have to 
read him two or three times and, and let it sort of sink in a little, but he's on to something here. That what has taken place in society, in, the, in civil society, but it's also taken place within the church, is a total reassessment, a rethinking of the traditional view of justice. And it has implications for how we view hell and the concept of punishment and the concept of eternal punishment and whether that is viewed as right or wrong. Because the instinct of the church today is to think of eternal punishment as somehow unfair. Uh, thirdly, a psychological, uh, the, 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 the impact of psychology. Uh, and this, of course, is, is the Freud legacy on the, uh, on the 20th century. Uh, theories blame um, eternal, uh, sorry, theories, uh, theories of, uh, of wrongdoing and so on blame external influences or biology or the genes in, in which there's a, a, almost a wholesale determinism. We can't help what we do because of the genes. You know, people, people want to defend liberty at all costs, and then when it comes to uh, genetics, the, uh, liberty goes out the window, and it's all deterministic. Uh, so it's kind of radical, uh, a radical genetic determinism uh, or subconscious forces for which the individual is not responsible. So there's an, an entire psychological worldview that, that has called into question the idea of punishment or the rightness of punishment. No one, no one fesses up anymore. Right? You watch TV and, and, and nobody wants to take the blame anymore. Nobody wants to say, I was wrong. You know, the, 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 the guy, the, 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 the chairman of a corporation or the great sportsman or whoever who's done some terrible thing, but he, he, nobody wants to fess up. Um, all of that has affected... Uh, the, the doctrine of hell. The idea of the rightness and the appropriateness of judgment. Uh, and then a fourth uh, idea here, salvation. Uh, the, the concept of salvation has changed. What, what are you saved from? You know, the church in um, Orlando, when, when I when I used to teach uh, in uh, a course in, in RTS in Orlando, you'd land in uh, Orlando Airport, and you know, three quarters of the flight are heading to Disney, uh, and with kids, and they're all excited and so on. And and you're heading to teach in the seminary, and uh, and so once you got over that, and you, you're driving along uh, the highway, and there was this big billboard, um, uh, and uh, uh, a, a huge sign on the billboard uh, saying, uh, "God is not angry." God is not angry. Uh, it's, it's one of those things, you know, that, that kind of works sublimin, subliminally, I, I guess. You know, God is not angry because God has no anger. Because there is no such thing as anger. Anger is essentially wrong. I, I, anger is, is sub-Christian. Right? The fact that Paul says, be angry and sin not, is beside the point. But God is not angry. So what exactly are you being saved from if not the anger of God? Um, salvation from a lack of self-esteem, perhaps. 
rather than the fear of judgment. We need to be saved from the lack of self-esteem, from a bad view of ourselves. So salvation is uh, uh, liberation from oppression or liberation from bad habits over which we have have little or no control. And and there's a variety of options here. But all of these, these are just sort of windows through which you can see how the doctrine of hell is called into question and how the doctrine of hell is, is a really tough doctrine to sell in 2015. Because the worldview all around us, and it's not just around us, it's right inside the church. We all subliminally adopt these worldviews and begin to question the rightness and the appropriateness of the idea of punishment. Uh, What is the pastoral importance of the doctrine of hell? And um, I have um, a quotation here from 2 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, and it's verse uh, uh, 10 uh, that I wanted to draw attention to. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. And it's the idea uh, that's at the heart of apostolic ministry, of of what apostolic ministry is, and therefore at the heart of the gospel, the idea uh, for Paul that there is a day of reckoning. We must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not just the judgment seat of God, but the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, now, uh, let, me, let me pick up uh, these final points here in the last few minutes that we have. First of all, hell is real. Uh, there's this uh, story, it's often retold, uh, of a member of the British royal family in a previous age uh, inquiring of one of the deans of uh, a cathedral uh, whether or not uh, there exists a hell. And the dean replied after some thought that our Lord taught it and the apostles taught it and the creeds teach it and the church believes it to be so. And, and the sovereign said to the dean, why then in God's name do you not tell us so? Right? Because he never preached on hell. Well, hell is real. It's not a fiction. It's not a fantasy. It's real. It exists. And that should sober us. And it's part of what we, what we need to know and understand and appreciate about, about the gospel. A, that it delivers us from hell, and and B, that we need to proclaim the gospel. We need to witness, we need to evangelize, and we do that wisely, and we do that judiciously, and we do that differently in different contexts, for sure, Uh, but we need to be earnest and sincere, and and, uh, as those who realize that here uh, we have no continuing city, and... uh, uh, and we know not when, when we die. And the person, uh, the person that, you're, that you're speaking to could be whisked away into eternity uh, in, a, in a heartbeat. Um, the, the reality of hell. Secondly, hell is vividly described in the New Testament. And yes, there are metaphors. 
And they are darkness, burning flames, grinding teeth, and so on. They're, they're, they're metaphors. Um, few, few, you know, have mimicked, few preachers have mimicked the graphic use of metaphor, say, that Jonathan Edwards uses in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But, they, but, but metaphors are metaphors that describe reality. They're not metaphors describing fantasy. They're not metaphors describing non-reality. They're describing reality. I think that the essential aspect of hell is being outside of. I think the essential, the essential thought is in Revelation 22, where you have the description of the city, God's city, and then there's outside. You're outside. You're not in fellowship. You're not in communion. You're outside. Outside of blessing. Forever outside. Uh, and then uh, another thought that hell is shared by the devil, fallen angels, and human beings. And you have, uh, you have this word Gehenna in Greek um, from the Hebrew. Gehinnom, uh, terms derived from a place outside ancient Jerusalem and known in the Hebrew Bible as the Valley of the Son of uh, Hinnom, where, where child sacrifices were made to Moloch uh, in Second Chronicles 28.3. So you've got this, this depiction of, again, outside of the city in a valley where children are sacrificed to a pagan uh, deity, and that's, that's, the, that's the word that, it, that is associated now with, uh, with um, hell. Uh, the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is there in Gehenna, in Luke 16. In the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, those who do not love Christ's brothers are there. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, some who prophesied, cast out demons, worked miracles in Christ's name are there. That it's possible to have the outward, the outward trappings of Christianity and, and not be a Christian and not have faith. And therefore, and therefore you, these are people who have prophesied in the name of Jesus and have performed miracles, yes, but are in Gehenna. Or those who do not know and do not obey the gospel are there, Second Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. Judas Iscariot is there, Acts 1, 25. The devil, the beast, and the false prophet are there in Revelation 19 and 20. And then my final thought, there is an escape from hell, at least in this world. You can escape hell. You can avoid hell. And that is through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Uh, so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ compels us to preach the gospel, to make that gospel known. It uh, compels us. It, uh, it constrains us. 
It doesn't leave us with any choice. We must preach this message. We must preach this gospel. Well, that's the urgency of the task. Uh, in all of our ministry, uh, yes, in one sense, uh, to pluck them like brands from the burning and rescue them from hell. That's a biblical picture, and we must be faithful to it. It's not, it's not the entire picture, but, it, but, it's, but it's part of the biblical picture of what salvation uh, means. And uh, pray to God that we would be faithful to that. Father, we thank you. We want to be gripped by the gospel more than we are so that we can say with Paul that the love of Christ compels us, constrains us, holds us in so that we, we find we cannot do anything else but, but proclaim that gospel. That in Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. There is eternal life. There is the anticipation of heaven and joy and beauty and fullness and wholeness and integration. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the assurance that is ours that whosoever believes uh, in him, in Christ, uh, will not perish but have everlasting life. And uh, receive our thanks, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.